News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Messias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to the Luke Messias Show. Is Tucker Carlson moving to Texas? That's actually a question that I wasn't planning on asking, but we're asking it today because right before we started filming this, news broke that Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. This is going to have major implications for conservative media, regardless of where you're at. We're also going to break down today some commentary by Dr. Tom Oliverson with Texas Public Policy Foundation. He went there and sat down with them for an interview and really gave us a window into some of the thinking of House leadership. So we're going to break some of his conversation down today. Let's get to the show. Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News, and this is a major thing. He is the most significant voice in, I would say, all of conservative media today. I mean, just this weekend, somebody from my church texted me and said, I'm not a huge Tucker Carlson fan, but I found this clip of him really interesting. And there are other people I know that watch his show every single day. He has the largest and most dedicated audience of conservative Americans for anybody. So what does him leaving Fox News mean? First of all, you have to know that this is a little bit of a surprise. Tucker Carlson left his show Friday saying, see you Monday. And then Monday morning it gets announced he's not at Fox News anymore. It doesn't seem like this was necessarily his decision, but we'll find out more as details come out. This is going to shake the media landscape. Fox News lost Dan Bongino last week. A lot smaller than Tucker Carlson, but still significant. And now Tucker. Why? Why do both of these names matter? Because they're both the two most conservative names at Fox News. And if they're replaced with people who represent the status quo of that media entity, you are going to largely have nothing but cheerleaders for the middle of our country. Now, you're seeing alternative media grow massively. The show has people that get information from us. I had a conversation with somebody who called me over the weekend who's been a regular uh, listener, viewer of the show, who was saying, I wouldn't know what's going on in the Capitol were it not for this program. I had text messages. I get emails every week from people who say, this is what I share with people at our Republican club. This is what I share with people at our church to let them know what's happening. So we know that individual citizens are going different places for their media. And you have the rise of the Daily Wire, you have alternatives, you have Substack, you have different journalists finding different ways to engage in the media landscape as a whole, different ways of getting to individual consumers, individual readers, individual listeners, and viewers. Tucker Carlson had the largest cable show in America. And so there's two different let's say revolutions going on right now with alternative media. One is providing information and content that mainstream media won't provide. But the other is just where people physically get it. You have the cutting the cord movement, right? My generation of people, we don't really pay cable companies a hundred and something odd dollars a month to be able to scroll through 3,600 channels and not know what to watch. That's not how we consume information anymore. And this is changing 
the way all of these media companies work. And I'm telling you that over the next five or 10 years, you're going to see a pretty massive evolution occur within media. And I think Tucker Carlson is yet another major blip on the entire radar screen of the changing landscape for media. Where does Tucker land? I don't know. I do know that Tucker, it would not surprise me if he continues to focus more on red states like Texas and Florida in whatever he does. I would love it if he moved to Texas and actually started to take his voice that we've highlighted on this show on a regular basis and actually project that more into what's going on in our state because every time he has done it, it has usually led to something helpful and positive. Where are his viewers gonna go? Where are his listeners gonna go? We'll see if he starts his own show. We'll see what he does. YouTube, a podcast, but we'll keep you up to date. Speaking of podcasts, we are actually about to launch season five of Exposed. Exposed is one of the most successful podcasts here at Texas Scorecard. The first season was actually about Round Rock ISD and all that was happening, really starting the conversation of all the corruption at the local school board level. These type of conversations have led to a huge amount of conservatives jumping into school board races across our state. We've also exposed China and all of its ties in Texas. We've exposed the sexualization of children, drag shows, and all the different things that are happening. And these are now major conversations occurring in the halls of the Texas Capitol. So this season, season five, is going to be about the border. We're going to expose even more for you what is really happening at the border. And I've had a chance to have conversations with the team that's been heavily involved in the production of this season. Wade Miller is actually the one who's coming in and hosting it. He works with the Center for Renewing America, has been on the front lines of many of these immigration issues. But you're going to learn, I promise, I don't care how engaged you are on the issue of immigration in Texas, you're going to learn even more about what's going on so that you're able to then have further conversations with everybody around you in the state to say, hey, here's what's happening. So go to wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed to Exposed, and as it comes out, you're gonna learn a lot about the border, about immigration as a whole, and what's really happening. So one of the things I was able to do last week was sit down and watch a conversation that Greg Sindelar with Texas Public Policy Foundation had with Dr. Tom Oliverson. And Dr. Oliverson is somebody who has risen to prominence during Dade Phelan's speakership. I would say he rose a little bit under the Dennis Bonin regime, but as Dade Phelan took over the helm of speaker, Tom Oliverson has risen even more in the prominence of the type of legislation he's carrying and then the positions he holds. He's on the Public Health Committee. He is the chairman of insurance, and he's someone who is looked to by the speaker to help to make big decisions on healthcare policy, on issues like um, gender modification of children. Last session, he was one of the Republicans who kind of stood in the way of helping ban gender modification of children behind the scenes. And this session, he was given the bill to usher through. And we've said that the bill that currently is looking like it's gonna move through, Senate Bill 14, is a very strong ban on modifying the mutilate, really ending and banning the mutilization of children, right? And, and that, that abuse that happens to these children happens in the form of not only the surgeries that occur, but also the, the hormones they're given, the cross-sex hormones they're given, the puberty that's blocked, literally stopping the body from doing what it's supposed to do, and then messing and perverting the functions that the body would naturally go into to try to turn this body into something that it is not. Right, So SB 14 does an effective job of saying no medical professionals will engage in this. And luckily, 
with negotiations and conservatives pushing, we've been able to ensure that the ban remains as strong as some of the other states that are passing their bans as well. So SB 14, that is part of the conversation, and that's actually what we're going to start with a, a clip. There were some things that Dr. Oliverson said, though, in the course of this conversation that were pretty concerning, okay? And also what we're going to do is we're going to dissect some of his statements and use it to learn more about how House leadership thinks on a couple varying issues, whether it's the LGBT issue, the property tax issue, or the system as a whole. Because as we've talked about, they are playing the clock. House leadership has moved as slowly as possible. Dan Patrick, we told you last week, came out and said, if they keep moving this slowly, we are going to force a special session because the people deserve to have their voices heard through policy victories that reflect the values of the Republican Party and conservatives that have worked hard to elect the majority that Republicans have. So let's start with a clip that comes out specifically when Dr. Oliverson is talking about children who are being transitioned and one of the problems with transitioning children at such a young age. Let's go to this clip. My mind that it may be that some of the treatments that we're pushing on these children for what is perceived as gender dysphoria might actually be harming them in terms of, you know, that the, there's a um, uh, there's this concept, I think, uh, we talk about authentic self, right? Like, yeah. like, can I grow up to be who I was always meant to be, yeah. right? Whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and so there is this notion that perhaps um, there's a, in fact, there is a study that says that's a significant percentage of young people who experience pre-adolescent gender dysphoria, that's gender dysphoria that starts before puberty, 60 to 90 percent of them, depending on which study you're looking at, if you give them mental health support, the gender dysphoria either resolves by the end of the second decade of life or they realize that they're same sex attracted. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that is an issue. And we heard that from psychologists and we heard that from detransitioners and we heard that from other folks that was like, you know, I thought I wanted to be trans, but the reality is, is that I was gay. Yeah. And now you've taken away my ability to be that authentic self. Yeah. So let's talk about what's actually pretty concerning about this clip. And again, we're in the middle of a legislative session where we are focused on actually accomplishing some pretty big victories. And Dr. Oliverson is going to align with conservatives on quite a few of these victories. One being the gender modification ban that is going to pass, Senate Bill 14. But this perspective is really dangerous. The most important battle is what the battle is about. For most of us, and I would think for most of y'all, this is about ending the sexualization of children, okay? One, two, three, four-year-old kids are being groomed and sexualized in the classroom. They're being sexualized by psychologists. They're being sexualized by their parents. They're being sexualized by medical professionals. They're being sexualized by performers. These are all happening in various forms at different times. And we believe that children should be separated from the sexual revolution, okay? It's a very simple rule. Now, one thing to realize is that every Republican politician that becomes a quote unquote champion on your issue, 
doesn't necessarily see it the same way. And that's okay. We've, re- we've used the Milton Friedman quote all the time, right? The way to win is not to elect enough good people who want to do the right thing. You can't do that. And I've been in the Capitol. I promise you, you can't do that. But what you can do is you can create a political environment. This is from the Milton Friedman quote. You can create a political environment where the wrong people want to do the right thing. So we can create an environment where people say, hey, we have to stop genital mutilization on Texas kids. And everyone in the Capitol says, we're going to do it. Cool. And then they look and they find some doctor who says, hey, let's ask him to do it because he's a doctor. So he's a better person to present this. But what we take away from this clip is that it seems like Dr. Oliverson is kind of okay with children being sexualized, with children being basically grafted into the sexual revolution, as long as it's done in regards to sexual identity and not gender identity. And that's something I disagree with. And it's something you should disagree with. And it's something we should call out even in the middle of a legislative session where we're working with Dr. Oliverson on this issue. Because here's the problem. We need to stop sexualizing our kids, period. Two, three, four, five-year-old kids, their brains are literally getting formed. They're understanding things. My son is two and a half years old. And he convinced himself two months ago that none of his cousins were girls, okay? So he has a lot of cousins. I have six siblings. My wife has eight siblings. A lot of them are having children, okay? So he has a lot of cousins. But for some reason in his mind, he was convinced that all cousins were male. And so he literally tells me, I'm talking about one of his female cousins, Oh, well, what about this cousin? He said, well, she's not my cousin. She doesn't have a penis. And you're like, okay. But he's figuring all these things out right now. What's a boy? What's a girl? He asks me all the time, hey, that is that guy a boy? Is that a man? Is that a woman? He's figuring these things out, okay? A mommy. What's a mommy? What's a daddy? These are literal questions that these kids are asking. And you want to know who they're asking? People who should have a fundamental understanding of the right answers to these questions. But there are a lot of children in Texas who are surrounded by people who will tell them that not every child has a mommy and a daddy. They tell them that. Did you know that that is not true? No child can come into this world without a mother and a father. Okay, it is true that modern technology is giving us all sorts of ways of morphing that up, but it doesn't mean that the fundamental biology needed to create this child is a mother and a father. We have literally forgotten that we're supposed to tell boys that they eventually become men and that men become husbands and husbands become fathers, that girls become women and women become wives and wives become mothers, that this is literally the natural progression that happens for people who are in the state of Texas. And even if that changes for some other state, if in California they decide that they want to recreate a trajectory of where people go in society, that they can do that, but we're not going to jump on that bandwagon. And so I'm concerned. Anytime we take a child and graft them into the sexual revolution, the L, the G, the B, the T, 
the QIA, the plus, the Z, whatever letter it is, get them out of it, period. Now, again, Dr. Oliverson is going to push a lot of good policy this session, and I'm appreciative of that fact, but it doesn't change the fact that if next session we're arguing about why children need to be taken out of the rest of the alphabet soup, that Dr. Oliverson, based on his comments there, might actually be working against us. And you shouldn't be surprised because we told you here that he might actually be against us. So let's go to the next clip. The next clip is about property taxes. And I think this is just slightly instructive. We won't spend as much time on this, but it's instructive as to how the house operates. So let's go to this clip. You know, <laughs> I, um, I had my own proposal. Yes. My proposal is, is, was birthed here at TPPF, yes. courtesy of our, our mutual friend, Vance Ginn. Yeah. And I'm a strong believer in the taking of the surplus revenue and lowering the M&O. Yeah. Um, that apparently is just not the direction either chamber wants to go. Yeah. So Dr. Oliverson here is talking about the two property tax relief plans by the chambers. The Senate has said we want M&O compression and then we also want homestead exemption increases not only for people under 65, but people over 65 as well. And the House has said we want to use M&O compression. And I'll explain what M&O compression is in just a minute. And then also we want to cap your appraisals at 5%. So uh, a reminder for everyone kind of following this discussion is that you're, if, if you only own one home and that's your homestead, your appraisal is capped at 10%. So it doesn't matter if your home doubles in value in one year. It's only going to go up 10% every single year. And what Dave Field wants to do is he wants to take that from 10 and go to five. And then he wants to apply that to all properties. So if you own another lot, if you own some land, if you own a commercial building, an apartment complex, anything. And then what Dan Patrick is pushing for is actually uh, a homestead exemption increase. So if you do own your homestead, you don't just get what you pay to schools reduced, which is what MO compression is, but you're also going to get a, an increase in the state homestead exemption, which could be added to whatever city you have or anything like that, to make sure that you're being taxed on a lot less. And this is going to be better for anybody, let's say, with a home of 350000 or less. I'm doing rough math here. And then, of course, the Senate is going to greatly benefit anybody who's sitting on $10 million of real estate because they're having to fight significant increases. What Dr. Oliverson says here is that he favors putting a bunch of money into M&O compression. So what M&O is maintenance and operation portions of what a school district gets, okay? And what we have is we have a mechanism in the state where we can write a large check to our schools to cover that particular area of their budget. But the rule is that when we write this check to them, they have to reduce their local property taxes the same amount. So I say, I'm gonna give you school district $25 million. You're gonna reduce the amount that you're taxing your local property owners $25 million. And this is what we call M&O compression. Now, Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, the Huffines Liberty Foundation, the Luke Macias Show, and a bunch of other people have basically taken the position that M&O compression is the absolute best way because it actually puts us on a pathway to zero. I see a lot of benefit in a homestead exemption increase because I do think that the fundamental right that we should try to preserve is owning your own home, not necessarily owning all property. Not that I wouldn't love for everyone to be able to own all property and not have to rent any of it from the government in the form of a large property tax payment, but 
I think that is a much harder place to get than it is to be able to say that you actually own your own home. The generational change that that would have on Texas families would be phenomenal. So I do like the homestead exemption as well, but MO compression is the absolute best. Here's the one thing I want to point out with Dr. Tom Oliverson's statement. He says, well, I have my own plan. And it's the same plan here birthed at Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is MNO compression. And by the way, Texas Public Policy Foundation has been a strong proponent, along with TFR and Huffines Liberty and these other groups. They have been strong proponents for saying compression is key, compression is ideal, compression is best. So he says, hey, that's my plan, y'all's plan, that's what I want. It doesn't look like either chamber wants to do it. Here's one thing I want to remind you about, though. On House Bill 2, there was an amendment offered by Representative Tony Tinderholt that only received the vote of like 18 Republican members. And it took the amount of compression of MO from 12 billion to 20. It would have meant that the Texas House plan, by the time it passed out of their chamber, was the largest property tax cut in Texas history. And Dr. Tom Oliverson was not one of the 18 people that voted for it. Doesn't that seem a little weird? Doesn't it seem a little weird that you can walk three blocks down from the Capitol, sit down and say, let me tell you what the Dr. Oliverson plan is. It's MNO compression. I love this. It's awesome. It's the way. And yet when one of your colleagues offers MNO compression, you're not one of the 18 Republicans that votes for it. So again, I'm using this as, as an instructive lesson, example of how the Capitol operates sometimes. Here's what you're gonna learn the longer you follow politics, is that most politicians don't believe that their rhetoric has to align with their actions, called cognitive dissonance. And so you're gonna see this at a federal level, you're also gonna see it at a state level, you'll see it at a local level, when county commissioners say, hey, I don't want pornography in my school libraries. And yet they keep funding the libraries even though they have pornography. So it's just a good reminder and takeaway that we need to be looking one for the lawmakers that are saying one thing and voting the same way and then calling people out when they don't because that's the only thing that actually conforms and maybe combines those two things together. What we're trying to do is create an environment where it's harder to say one thing and vote another. So this is one example. And lastly, we're gonna close with commentary from Dr. Oliverson on the process in the Texas House. And this is going to instruct the next, really three, four, five weeks. It's gonna give you a great example of exactly the battle going on right now in that chamber. So let's go to this clip. There's a lot of things. I think one of the things that people don't realize on the House side is that a lot of the big fights on contentious policy happen on the house side mm -hmm. it's just the nature of the process our process is Let's not set up so it's just worth realizing that all of the contentious fights happen on both sides it's literally required for a policy to become a law so what now i'll be a little charitable to him and say that what he's saying is that the fight when it happens on the house side is more contentious than when it happens on the senate side and that is true um, some of that is the way the chambers operate and some of it is basically how leadership allows democrats to behave so let, let's continue in a way that we can move bills quickly yeah 
Um, well, and that we have be that one of my extra questions. step of the calendars committee. Yes. The calendars committee in the Senate <laughs> is essentially a lieutenant governor. Yeah, right? they don't really have and rules so it's over like, there, you know. <laughs> and so you know, he can move the good policy, and he can be, you know. Whereas yeah. we have that extra step, and so and then so what you have to start Pause. thinking about. Okay, so. Dr. Oliverson tries to act like the calendars committee is what really complicates this whole process, okay? Very strange too, because here's the reality. Uh, the calendars committee, and then he says, well, the Senate can move this stuff quickly because they just have a lieutenant governor and he gets to decide what to put on the calendar. And the calendar, we got this calendars committee and that's a really big step. Okay, a majority of members from the calendars committee can literally vote for any bill to go on the calendar. And a majority of members of the calendars committee are Republicans. And every single one of the Republicans are chosen by Dade Phelan, okay? So understand this, Dade Phelan could make that calendars committee as Republican as he wanted, and they can put any bill on as soon as they get the bill. I mean, it's like 24 hours, they have to have 24 hours before layout and all this different stuff. But like, understand, that there are bills that have been sitting in calendars for two or three weeks. Those bills are going to pass into law, but the bills that come into calendars in the next week or two are going to need significant pressure to Republican members to actually decide to put them on the calendar. But this isn't that complicated. It's saying, oh, well, Dan Patrick can put it on on his own. And in the House, you need to actually have the Republicans on the calendars committee put it on. It's not that complicated, and it could go very quickly if they wanted it to, if Dustin Burroughs wanted it to. So let's continue. I think this is what a lot of people miss, is that there are only so many calendars to mm -hmm. hear however many bills we're going to pass for the whole session. Yeah. And there and there were always less calendars in the House than there were, you know, potentially in the Senate. It's just the way it works out. We we are limited constitutionally in our ability to take up measures in the first sixty days yeah. of session. Pause. Okay, so he just said there are always less calendars in the House and the Senate. And then he says we're limited constitutionally as if these things have anything to do with themselves. Again, I just want to remind you how much they catechize members into thinking this way. And there are freshman Republicans who still aren't sure what exactly they think about how it works in the House. But Dr. Oliverson's been there long enough where he's literally, I think, convinced himself that they just have less days that they discuss these issues then in the Senate. And just to let you know, I know this seems really like elementary, rudimentary, they have the same amount of days, okay? Nothing in the Constitution says the Senate, it has like more days than the House. They have the same amount of days, they could literally meet more and longer. And by the way, we have episodes, we came to you in January and February when Representative Tinderholt and other conservatives were literally like, I'm opposing staying here. I'm voting against leaving. And all of these members voted to go home. They're voting to go home on the weekends now. They could literally stay and debate policy. They could have done it last Saturday. They could do it this Saturday. Will they? I don't know, but they get to decide if they do. They're not forced to not address these issues. Let's wrap this clip up. And so if you think about it, every priority bill whether it's school choice, whether it's gender modification, whether it's the Reader Act, getting rid of those bad, dirty, pornographic books in our school libraries. Um, almost all of those really important bills, that's a multi-hour floor debate and quite frankly, a bit of a fight, Yeah. right? The minority party who's not gonna be in favor of this policy is gonna come 
you know, un is going to unload both barrels, right? Yeah. They're going to try to kill it with points of order, and if yeah. they're unsuccessful, they'll go through a series of amendments. Yep. And I've seen, because I carried a bill to, uh, against defunding the police last time <laughs> uh, with Senator Huffman, Senate Bill 23, and over two days, second reading, third reading, I had to fight off almost 30 hostile amendments. Yep. And I'm telling you, like, one amendment is a 15 to 20-minute conversation. Yep. So you can see how you have 30 amendments at, you know, 20, 30 minutes apiece. You chew up a lot of clock really fast. Yeah. Well, and so you think about it, like, so how many really contentious fights can, you can we schedule around all the other non-contentious, really important stuff that needs to be done? This week we're doing the budget. Yeah. So, like, tomorrow... Okay, so I just want to appreciate the fact that Dr. Oliverson seems to have endorsed what we've been saying in January and February, though he wasn't voting that way. Okay, so when the governor actually designated certain issues emergency items, those are items that can literally be debated on the House floor and sent to the governor's desk in the first two months. There were votes that members took that said, I don't wanna go home because we could literally be debating the governor's items now, which would be days that we debate now so that we have more days to debate other contentious policy in the latter part of the session. Did you know that many of the governor's emergency items still haven't been debated on the House floor today? And we told you that that was intentional. And Dr. Oliverson here has said, hey, the way it works is that there's only some days and then it's a fight and we got to fight 15 minutes for every single amendment. I know, we know. That's why we said you have to get to work and they didn't. And Dr. Oliverson voted to go home all of those times, but then sits down and says, hey, just to let you know, it's going to be hard to get to all this stuff because, you know, we kind of run out of time. So understand that politicians will do whatever they can to separate blame, Right. There's a bunch of bills that have the potential to die in the next four weeks in the Texas House of Representatives. And if those bills die, you will never hear the vast majority of the politicians there ever claim that anybody killed it. It's like the one place you can walk into, die, and no one kills you, okay? That's the way bills get murdered. I don't know how it works. Whatever room is in, they all walk out and they're like, they didn't do it, they didn't do it, they didn't do it. This isn't like the game of Clue where you can figure out with enough cards. They literally are almost all in on it. And if any of them come out, if any Republican member comes out and says, that chairman killed this bill, that chairman killed this bill, this individual decided to slow that bill down enough to make sure it died. They are crucified by their colleagues. That is the club in the Texas House of Representatives. And that is the club that each and every one of you are going to work with a bunch of conservative groups and the Republican Party of Texas and almost the entire Texas Senate and even the governor on some of these issues to assault. That is the club that we are going to all work to force to deliver the results that we need delivered. That is what we need to do this week. That's what we need to do for the rest of the legislative session. I appreciate your time. May God bless you and may God bless the great state of Texas. Thank you for listening to The Luke Macias Show. To find out more information about what's going on here in Texas, visit texasscorecard.com.